0: We are ready for a long day and a pleasant night here on the Tennis Podcast. This is the show about top tennis lists. Every week, either myself or my guest sidekick host bring a top tennis list. The other person doesn't know what the list is ahead of time, they try to guess. Normally, I'm joined by my grandpa Brandon, who we call the sidekick host but Brandon is taking an extended break so during this time, I'm welcoming on a new guest sidekick host every week. This week, I'm pleased to announce my guest sidekick host is Randall Colburn. Randall is an award-winning playwright, journalist, with published work on The A.V. Club, Consequence of Sound, and more, but I most know him from his podcast, The Losers Club. Randall, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a blast to be here. Yeah. I love being on podcasts.
0: Well, I sure hope so, because you've been on your own podcast for (laughs) many years now. (laughs) Five years going, not sick of it yet. We're almost four years, and mm, a little sick of it, but I'm going to push through for the (laughs) listeners. I've been a constant listener of the Losers Club since almost the beginning, like you said, over five years. If the listeners haven't figured it out by now, they're a podcast devoted to Stephen King. And everyone listening to this knows how big of a Stephen King fan I am. Randall, do you want to take a minute just to tell the folks at home a little more about you and your podcast? Let them get to know you a little bit.
1: Yeah, my name is Randall. I'm a writer. I've worked as a playwright. I've worked on uh, digital media. I'm currently working on a novel. But I guess my ongoing passion is Stephen King. Uh, I co-founded, co-host a podcast called The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast with a bunch of my good friends here in Chicago. We realized one of the things that bound us all together was our love of Stephen King. And we started The Losers Club and we, I think, we're were, we're writers and we're analytical readers. And so we didn't want to start like a fan cast about Stephen King yeah, We wanted to be analytical. We wanted to be subversive. We wanted to be a little bit irreverent, because that's just our sense of humor. Yeah, so we started just going through the books chronologically, and we wanted to be exhaustive with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some of the inspirations, I think, for the format of the show was uh, the retro video game podcast, Retronauts, which I really love, the Kane mm-hmm. and Rince podcast, another video game podcast, Or like the projection room, like for film, like, you know, in depth, long episodes going really, really deep into the history, trying to get interviews, but not being sort of slavish to the subject. We've been doing it for five years. And we're where are we at in King's work? We're at about 2001, 2002. Early 2000s. Yeah, that's where we're at now. We just covered the book Dreamcatcher and we're about to do Black House, which is the sequel to The Talisman. It's been a blast. And we've grown, we've lost members of the club, we've grown members of the club over time. It's, you know, podcasts are a hard thing to commit to, but really pleased with where we're at. And yeah, I'd say it's been extremely rewarding in a lot of ways. King has recognized us on Twitter and and elsewhere. And so it was nice to get that bump. But at the same time, we were also very critical of him on the podcast, which I think is sort of to me, sort of the joy of being a Stephen King fan is that he'll write the best book you've ever read and maybe the worst one too.
0: I remember that tweet he sent. It said something along the lines of, you know, I love the Losers Club, even though it's a little like attending my own funeral or something. Yeah, along he those said lines. it was like
1: Tom and Huck watching their own funeral. <laughs> that's right. We are critical, but we always try to look at things through the lens of the time and the period and what he was going through personally. I think that's another thing that makes our pod stand out is because he's always been a pretty public person. So we yeah. love to sort of say what was going on in his life at the time. He was getting sober or he was at the height of his addiction or he had just gotten hit by a car. You know, that's like where we're at now is him yeah. in the aftermath of this life-threatening accident he went through. And we're kind of talking about how that impacts his work. And, and personally, I mean, it makes me enjoy a lot of the works of the era we're discussing right now, looking at it through this lens of near death and mortality and uh, and pain. Yeah. I don't know. There's like He's such a rich subject in a lot of ways to discuss. I think he represents so much about the American celebrity and the American writer, and also somebody who has shepherded genre in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. from something that was a bit disreputable into something that is, you know, globally beloved now, you know? And so um, he's kind of been along for the ride and been one of the major figures in that.
0: On top of everything you said, which I agree with about why he's so fascinating, he's also been writing novels since the 70s. Yeah. yeah. There's so much content out there. You know, I've listened to several Stephen King podcasts, but yours is my favorite because of that analytical side. Yeah. You know, I just, something else you said stood out there where you can kind of see what's going on in his life based on his writing. I just finished Misery and listened to your Misery episode. It's so clear that like what's going on in his life at that time, getting over addiction, struggling to overcome the quote unquote stigma of being a horror only writer. You see that in the book. So it's just really fascinating.
1: Yeah, that was a really, really uh, fun episode to do because there's so much to draw upon. And he's said before, he's like, you know, Annie Wilkes is cocaine.
0: You know what I mean? But
1: then, yeah, but then you also have that whole added layer of him wanting to be taken seriously as something beyond just a genre writer.
0: I think he's self-conscious about it. Very self-conscious.
1: Yeah, Yeah, he was. I think he's a little bit less so now. uh, I think the public critical, you know, consensus has very much leaned in his favor over the years. And I wrote a piece for the outline um, some years ago that was basically just about the people who grew up reading Stephen King are now the people who are making movies and are the critics and are these things. And I think, you know, the Harold Blooms of the world, the kind of uptight critics who, you know, they're brilliant in their own way. But I think someone like Harold Bloom couldn't quite understand the impact that King had on a lot of people when they were younger. You know, I think like his work bridges that gap between the literary and um, the grotesque in ways that a lot mm. of other writers don't. I mean, his writing is genuinely beautiful at times. And it's also suddenly awkward at times, too. Yes. But like head
0: shakingly bad at
1: times. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think um, and I think that's in a lot of ways due to his prolific nature. Yeah, he pumps it out, man. And uh, but yeah, so I think I think someone who was sort of raised in a different era. Couldn't quite understand the appeal of King, and now that those people who grew up sort of reading King under their bed with a flashlight, <laughs> now they, you know, they're the ones who are making these movies and they have this like reverence and this love for him and this understanding of the ways in which his work has permeated culture and also influenced kind of the the direction of genre and so many other things. So, but on that
0: level, and no, no, and, and we're going to talk about this today. Is kind of you know he's crossed over into that very rare territory that very few writers have where their work is throughout pop culture. Even if you've never read Stephen King, even if you quote, you know, hate horror or don't watch horror, or don't like yeah. Stephen King books, you have still heard of, well, we'll talk about them today, but you've heard of many of the characters and the stories and the titles yeah. at least. Um, and that's something I want to say too to the listeners, you know, not everyone listening to this is a Stephen King fan uh, or have read Stephen King necessarily. You know, that's a given on your show, but on this show, it's a little more mixed. So, I think it's important to note that even though Randall and I are Stephen King uh, fanboys, uh, we're going to be talking about things that are familiar to most everyone out there.
1: No Duma Key chats on this one.
0: Oh, God. (laughs) Let's sidebar that sometime. I could... Okay. Real quick before I tell you the list and reveal it to you and have you start guessing, let's take a step back. And people have heard the name Stephen King. They're familiar with some of his most famous works. But... Here's uh, what Wikipedia says about him. He's an American author of horror, supernatural fiction, suspense, crime, science fiction, and fantasy novels. He's sold more than 350 million books. As of uh, this writing, he's published 64 novels, including seven under the pen name Richard Bachman, which we will get to. He's also published five nonfiction books and approximately 200 short stories. It's crazy. So, I mean. That's the other thing about this guy is it's not just the duration of time he's been writing, it's, you know, one to two books a year, most years. I for, know. What, almost 50 years? Jesus. 50 it's years insane. next year is Carrie. Yeah. Um, okay, so the list. Today, I'm going to have you guess the top 10 highest grossing films based on a Stephen King story. Okay. Many of these you've talked about on your own pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pulled my data here from Box Office Mojo. I also pulled some notes, fun facts and things like that from IMDB, Wikipedia, Audible has a blog that uh, summarized some of this, but you're going to guess the top 10 films ranked by their domestic all-time gross adjusted for inflation. That's the key. Yeah. You're going to be guessing films based on their 2022 box office domestically. Got it. I thought we'd start by guessing some surefire bets that are not in the top 10. Okay. Randall, do you think any of these are going to be in the top 10? Uh, The Mangler? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. The Mangler, that classic? Yeah, you don't think so? (laughs) I don't think so. Surprising to hear that.
1: Did that play in theaters?
0: I think so. Yeah, because it was on Box Office Mojo, like, at the very bottom. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important to note is, yeah, every one of these movies, they have to be a theatrical release. So, that rules out some of his really famous stuff, like the original It, which was a TV movie. Right. The Stand was a miniseries, but uh, yeah. that's not in here, obviously. So, it has to have a theatrical release, for sure. Yeah. Do you think Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Cyberspace <laughs> is in the top 10?
1: Also known <laughs> as Job's War. We just did an episode on it. <laughs> yeah, that one, I don't think. But I do remember seeing the trailers for it when I was a kid,
0: yeah. I have not seen either Lawnmower Man, nor have I read it, actually. So Well, the book and the
1: movie are are light years apart. It's It's such a strange really? adaptation. But as an adaptation of The Lawnmower Man, it's it's not the story.
0: Yeah. And we'll see as we go through, a lot of the more successful films kind of veer off from being a faithful adaptation. Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah.
0: I'll stop there. So why don't you give me a real guess here? What do you think is a movie released that in adjusted 2022 box office is going to be in the top 10?
1: Well, obviously, It Chapter 1. Yeah. And I guess It Chapter 2 as well. I mean, I know that those were both very big moneymakers, although Chapter 1, I know, did a lot, did better because it's the better movie for sure yeah so that's like one that i would assert is, mm-hmm. is probably in that top 10
0: let's talk about those so it chapters one and two do you have a prediction for where they fall on the list if number one is the highest
1: i think it chapter one is number one it chapter two might be like number three or four that would be mm-hmm. my guess
0: yeah they're actually one and two.
1: Oh wow okay there you go
0: yeah a few notes on these. Um, and Listeners of my show know I've talked about these movies several times, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but I'll give you a few nuggets here. So, let's start with It Chapter 2, which is number two. Uh, it was released in 2019 and its adjusted box office domestically is $235 million, wow. which is huge for a horror film. Yeah. It's based on the 1986 book, It, which, you know, that's my all-time favorite. Uh, it's the first one I read. It's up there for me too, yeah. Yeah.
1: Isn't it wild though too that like, Your first book was it. My first book was The Stand. And I I often meet people who those are also their first books. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people chose those thick ass books. You know, both both of those are more than a thousand pages. And those were the ones we chose to start with. And I mean, a lot of that has to do, I think, with the TV miniseries when we were young that aired. And those are kind of propelled us. I know that's why I love the 94 series, which is why I read the book. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've noticed as a trend is people tend to gravitate towards the long ones when they're starting.
0: Well, I think it has a lot to do, at least with It. I think the Stan less so, maybe this is me speaking, but It is, you know, one of his top two or three most famous stories ever, Yeah, yeah, I'd say. And, you know, It, I read it when I was 16, first book I read from him. And it's actually, I think the first book I like voluntarily read for my own pleasure and not, (laughs) you know, which is funny that I would pick this book that's longer than the fucking Bible, but I sure did. And I loved it. You know, it's, it really like affected me, Mm-hmm. when I read it at that time. And such a powerful book. But yeah. <laughs> some of the listeners are telling me to move on because they've heard me romance about it already. <laughs> but the, the movie, It Chapter 2, agree, it's definitely the weaker of the two. I'd say it's the weakest in the It franchise, period. I still yeah. enjoyed it. Sure. It stars Jessica Chastain, James McAvee, Bill Hader, Isaiah Mustafa, Jay Ryan, James Ransone, Andy Bean, and of course, Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise. The film is set in 2016, 27 years after the events of the first film. The second film centers on the Losers Club as their adults, and they reunite to destroy It once and for all. When this movie first came out, broke Fandango's record for most advance tickets sold by a horror film ever. Wow. Bill Skarsgård, I thought he did great as Pennywise. I want to get your thought yeah. on that in a minute. But he stated that he had more fun on the set of It too because he was actually able to talk to and hang out with his adult co-stars. He said he had minimal contact with his child co-stars in It, Chapter 1, because the director wanted them to be more genuinely scared of Pennywise once they saw him, and he had to calm them down after each shot. It's according to IMDB. What do you think of Bill Skarsgård's Pennywise?
1: I'm a big fan. I like it. I think he's, you know, he looks weird, which I think is uh, like striking features, and I think that's helpful. I. I love Tim Curry's performance in a lot of ways and but I mean I always imagine somebody like Crispin Glover playing Pennywise too I love Mm, Crispin Glover and but like people who are have those kind of striking angular curves to their face people who have a very distinct sort of way of speaking the Sarsgaard family we're big fans of them on the pod I mean Alexander Sarsgaard played Randall Flagg and even though we like and we didn't love like the stand series that um no, me either. that aired recently, but I thought you know we thought uh, Skarsgård was was pretty good, and um and Bill's really interesting too. I and I think he'll probably end up. I don't know if you've heard about the HBO Max Welcome to Dairy series. Yes, I definitely it's not announced yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if Bill returns because he clearly enjoyed playing in that world uh, based on the, you know, the stuff you just read. But then he also returned in Hulu's Castle Rock. Uh, He wasn't playing Pennywise, but he clearly enjoys, I think, horror and being in that world. And he's got a countenance that that really suits that, I think. So, yeah, I'm a I'm a a big fan of that performance. My favorite scene in part two is the scene between Bill and um, with Pennywise and the little girl under the bleachers. I think that's an incredibly chilling scene and probably uh, one of Skarsgård's best moments in both movies.
0: You guys talked about this on your pod, but those moments where Bill Skarsgård can just be Pennywise and not have like CGI or anything like that yeah. ruin it. My favorite part of It Chapter 2, the, the scene you mentioned is up there, but the one that stands out to me is when Beverly is leaving her old apartment. After the old lady, uh, you know, <laughs> transforms into some yeah. fucking yeah. Right as she's leaving, she turns and sees Pennywise like putting on his makeup in the mm. corner. Do you know the part I'm talking Good about? Scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That stands out to me for sure. Is the best part of that movie.
1: I love that, and that's that's I think the part of Welcome to Dairy that could be really great. Like we actually just dropped mm-hmm. an episode just talking about news in the King World just today, and we discuss you know what could potentially be in this series and i think that notion of who was the person behind pennywise you know like the because obviously the clown was once human um and this is sort of a presence that the it creatures has has, you know utilized right so i am interested i think it'd be cool to see the human pennywise the clown and that scene that you're referencing sort of gives us a little window into that yeah or at least i that's how i read it and i think that's like really chilling and very cool yeah
0: and as you and anyone who's read this book knows, there's plenty of material for a prequel series. Yeah. Really quick on It Chapter 1. It Chapter 1 was released two years prior, and it has an adjusted box office of $379 million, which is yeah. more than $100 million than It Chapter 2. Yeah. It's a coming-of-age supernatural horror film directed by Andy Muschietti. It says that in the entire movie, Pennywise only has four minutes of dialogue, which I found interesting, mm. which not, wow. not a bad thing, it's just uh, interesting restraint I love it and it's actually the fifth highest grossing r-rated film of all time uh, which we recently covered on this show back in episode 165 my last thing on it Randall I think I know where you're gonna go but I'm gonna ask this for all these movies is what's better the book or the movie and we'll lump both it's into this
1: yeah I would definitely say the book yep. I don't think almost any film adaptation could topple it it is um... it's a hard one well, it's like, and the beauty of it is, is in the characters, you know, and you can only go so far in film. Like, obviously, film is the haven for amazing characters. But I think in terms of the, the internal qualities, the, the thoughts, the motivations, the intentions of these characters, and especially watching them grow and watch them ruminate on friendship and on each other and on what they've lost as they've aged. Those are the things that I think are really, really, really resonant. And you can get some of that in the movies, but I can't imagine that depth manifesting in, you know, in the same manner, in the same resonances in, in a film. So, yeah, definitely a book for me.
0: Yeah, me too. And I mean, obviously, it's a horror book. It's classified as a horror book. But to me, it's a coming-of-age story about the way childhood affects you as an adult. And obviously, yeah. there's horror, you know, horror is all over the book. But to me, it's, it's a horror second. But yeah, I know that's, that's not how most people, especially those that haven't read it, would look at it. Yeah. So, let's move away from it. Uh, I'm going to intersperse your guessing here with a few fun facts about Stephen King. Okay. King lives in Bangor, Maine with his wife, the novelist Tabitha King. Two of his kids are also writers, Owen King, who co-wrote a book with Stephen King, Sleeping Beauties, and Joe Hill, who has been very successful in his own right. Yeah. One more fun fact, and then I'll let you guess, is Stephen King is 74 years young which, selfishly, I'm always wondering, like, okay, when's the last book? <laughs> Which one's the last one? You know, it could be any time. We're always yeah. on that edge, yeah. He's lived a hard life. hmm Okay, give me another guess. What's another movie in the top 10?
1: A movie I know made a shitload of money, even though it's perhaps not considered one of the most celebrated, is 1408. So, that's my guess.
0: I think you summed it up nicely. 1408, made a shit ton of money. Not one of my favorites. It's number nine in the top 10.
1: Oh, wow. I thought it would have been higher.
0: Something helping this movie, obviously, is the star cast. Yeah. This movie stars John Cusack, whom I love, Samuel L. Jackson, whom I also love. It came out in 2007 and it grossed, adjusted for inflation, $99 million domestically. Damn. It's based on the 2002 uh, short story, the same title. Listen to this. The film was released in the U.S. on June 22nd, 2007, but on the film's website, they (laughs) lied and said it was released on Friday, July 13th because they wanted a Friday the 13th release date. (laughs) So stupid. Like, if you want that date, why not just wait till July 13th? (laughs) I don't understand that. The film follows Mike Enslin, played by John Cusack, an author who investigates allegedly haunted houses and rents the titular room 1408 at a New York City hotel. And although he is skeptical of the paranormal, he is soon trapped in the room where he experiences bizarre events. Randall, give me your hot takes on 1408. You know, it's been, we're actually about to cover it in June on the podcast.
1: And I'm really excited because I just remember being kind of mildly positive on it when I saw it. Like I thought it was pretty good. But I wasn't blown away. It just kind of, you know, I think it's got some there's a couple of really creepy sequences that I remember from it. But I remember the ending being pretty unsatisfying as well. But but I have a friend here in Chicago who thinks 1408 is it's like his favorite horror movie of all time. Really? I told him this was in 2017. He told me about this when I went on his podcast, he's like, you got to have me on to talk 1408. And I'm like, whenever we get there, it's going to be a while. And uh, now we are about to get there. And I'm holding true to my promise. I'm going to let him make his case for 1408. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for me, um, I uh, it's been years since I've seen it. I only saw it once in the theater. And I thought me it too. was, you know, good. But to me, it's kind of just mid-tier, you know, mid-tier king.
0: I totally agree with that. And it's also funny that you talked to your friend about this in 2017. He's probably thinking, okay, maybe a year from now. But yeah, <laughs> no, then you're right. five <laughs> years later, So, you mentioned the ending. Director, I don't know how to say this, but uh, Michael Hafstrom, sorry, he said that the ending was reshot because test audiences felt the original ending was too much of a downer. Shocker, yeah. So, I'm not going to spoil it, but yeah, there's a director's cut of the ending that's much more tragic, apparently.
1: Yeah. Almost always veer on the side of tragic, so.
0: (laughs) Me too. Which is why a movie that's not on this list, so spoiler if you're going to guess this, but The Mist... I actually prefer the Myst film ending to the, to the book ending, but yeah, I don't know if you agree with that.
1: It's funny. I was, I was debating whether or not to guess the mist, which is a mm. movie I really like. Me too. The ending I hated when I first saw it, but I've come around on it, definitely. Uh, it's audacious. And I know I interviewed Frank Darabont and he told me about watching it with King, which was really cool. And King loves it, you know? hmm but yeah, that's interesting. It's not on the top ten, but I, I remember it not making much of a splash when it came out. Obviously, Darabont, he didn't. I don't. I can't remember if he made any films after that. I know he went to TV, but yeah,
0: yeah, uh, not on this list at least. He didn't. But um, yeah, yeah. It, uh, I'm looking. In fact, I have the top twenty five in front of me, and the mist isn't even in the top twenty five. Holy so. shit! Wow. Yeah. I didn't know it like tanked that bad. Uh, well, I don't know if tank, but mild, I think at best. Yeah. Yeah. We can't talk about The Mist without talking about Thomas Jane, who I loved in 1922, Yeah, which is a Netflix movie, so it's not going to be on this list, but that's one of my favorite short stories and one of my favorite adaptations.
1: Yeah, we love the movie on the pod, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've not actually... Oh, wait, no, I did read the story. I like the story, but I think I like the movie better than the story
0: Mm -hmm. even, yeah. Okay, well, 1408, I think I can just go ahead and assume you like the book better? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. What's another guess you have?
1: I'm going to go all the way back and say Carrie.
0: Carrie. I didn't know how Carrie would do just because it's so old, but when you adjust it for inflation, it's way up at number four.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. I remember, I know it was a really, really big hit when it came out and has persevered like very few mm-hmm. films have, I think, in terms of being parodied and uh, but also just the iconography of so many shots and, and that oh, yeah. speaks to King's story but also De Palma's direction which is wonderful mm-hmm. we revisited Carrie recently on the pod with the songwriter Colleen Green for our long watch series and mm-hmm. it was really fun to do that I've every time I watch Carrie I like it even more so yeah
0: yeah, and of course, you're talking about the 2013 Carrie, right?
1: <laughs> no, I hate that one. <laughs> I barely got through that, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I didn't mind it, but it, I didn't love it. It's not yeah. on the same level, yeah. But the original Carrie, Carrie launched Stephen King into superstardom.
1: Yeah.
0: He has that to thank. Obviously, other things came later too, but you know, this is what he has to thank really for his career taking off yeah. is this film which came out in 1976, adjusted for inflation. It made $169 million domestically. It's based on the 1973 book, Carrie, which was his first published novel. It's an American supernatural horror film directed by Brian De Palma. It stars Sissy Spacek as Carrie White, a shy 16-year-old girl who is consistently mocked and bullied at school. It's the first of more than 100 film and TV adaptations from works from Stephen King. As you mentioned, the iconography, the film's prom scene has had a major influence on pop culture was ranked 8th on Bravo's 2004 program, The 100 Scariest Movie Moments. I'm sure you know that list by heart. I watched the hell out of that. <laughs> During an interview in 2010, Stephen King said he was 26 years old, which is another fucking thing we could talk about. Yeah, like, he was a baby. I know. Even The Shining came out and he was like 30, I think. I know. So it's wild. It's crazy. He said he was paid 2500 bucks for the film rights. Yeah. He says, I was fortunate to have that happen to my first book. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino placed Carrie as one of his favorite movies ever. He had a list of his top 10 and he placed it number eight. That's kind of interesting, I thought. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the few horror films to be nominated for multiple Academy Awards, including Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress for Piper Laurie, who played, I think, her mother, right, Margaret? Yeah, she's awesome. One more fun fact here is when Sissy Spacek, who played Carrie, was preparing for her character, she says she isolated herself from the rest of the cast Decorated her dressing room with heavy religious iconography and studied Gustave Doré's illustrated Bible. She studied the body language of people being stoned for their sins, starting or ending every scene in one of these positions. Amazing. I love the commitment. That's also how I prepared for all my recording sessions with my regular sidekick host, Brandon. But yeah, that's crazy, right? Like... The commitment of an actor to put yourself through that when you don't have to. I mean, you already got the part. (laughs) Right, right. But it's funny. Actors are nuts, man. They're the worst. (laughs) Book or movie, Randall? Movie,
1: I think. I like the book a lot, but I think it's such a strong adaptation. And I think Sissy brings so much to the role that isn't even in the book. And I don't know. I feel like King might even say the same. I know he was a big fan of it and he should be.
0: Yeah, I love the movie too. Uh, I, I love the book a lot. I think I will put the book over it slightly, but I might be in the minority there. Sure. Okay, so that was number four. Let's do a quick recap. We got number nine, 1408, number four, Carrie, number two, It Chapter Two, number one, It. What's another guess?
1: Okay, um, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. This might be a movie that the cult for it sort of developed later,
0: but mm-hmm. I feel like it did well, which is Stand By Me. Stand By Me. I think you're right on both counts. It did well and it has definitely grown in its legacy yeah. over time. Where would you guess it is on this list? 10. It's 6. It's 6. Oh,
1: wow. It did better than I thought. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Me too. Me too. I thought it would actually be outside the top 10 because I thought like you that it, it did okay, but it gained a cult following after, but both yeah, things are yeah. true. It came out in 1986, $135 million adjusted box office. It's based on the 1982 short, uh, it's a novella, The Body. And this is one of those movies that when I talk to people, like people that don't read Stephen King, they had no idea yeah. that this movie is based on a Stephen King story. Yeah, yeah. It's an American coming-of-age story directed by Rob Reiner, who will be on this list again later. Spoiler. It stars Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell as four boys who in 1959 go on a hike to find the dead body of a missing boy. It was nominated for Academy Awards, Golden Globe Awards. So here's some fun facts. Days before the shooting uh, started, the, the film shooting started in the summer of 1985, Embassy, which I think was the production company, they were sold to Columbia Pictures, who had made plans to cancel production. But Norman Lear, one of the co-owners of Embassy and the developer of All in the Family, gave over $7 million of his own money to complete the film, citing his faith oh, wow. in the script and Rob Reiner. I actually did not know that. So I thought that was interesting that this person put over $7 bucks of their own money to make sure this thing was seen through.
1: That's really awesome. Uh, kudos to Norman Lear. In
0: 1986, Columbia Pictures, who uh, purchased the Embassy, They were concerned that the original novella title, The Body, was misleading, which I might agree with that. Yeah. They renamed the film Stand By Me. According to screenwriter, Reynolds Gideon, The Body sounded like either a sex film, a bodybuilding film, or another Stephen King horror film. (laughs) So, I think all that is not wrong. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So, they said Stand By Me was the least unpopular option they came up with. I don't love Stand By Me either as a title, by the way, but...
1: Yeah, it's like uh, just naming movies after songs, you know, that sort of perhaps capture the vibe a little bit. Yeah. I feel like whenever a, a movie has a song title as its name, it was it was not originally called that, <laughs> you know, that's like what the studio kind of puts on it. Right. But yeah, I, lo- I love Stand By Me. I think it's probably my favorite King adaptation of all time and in, in terms of... You
0: think so? Okay, wow. Yeah.
1: I think just personally, like in terms of what it does for me, it, um, it just checks a lot of boxes in terms of... Uh, what I love about King drama. You know what I mean? Uh, Friendship, um, aging, loss, childhood. And what's the word I'm looking for? I guess like adventure too, you know, it's a lovely, lovely story. And I think that all four performances are wonderful. I've talked about that extensively on the pod is I just, I'm, I'm such a Corey Feldman Stan. I think he was (laughs) such a, like one of the most talented child actors that we've ever had. And, And I feel such like um, intense sympathy for him uh, because of what he went through when he got older. And I know he's kind of a joke in culture these days, but it kills me because I think he was just so incredibly talented as a child actor and it's really on display in Stand By Me. But, you know, they're all wonderful. We've talked to Jerry O'Connell and Will Wheaton on the pod and Mm. and also the screenwriter. So, yeah, it's definitely a movie we love and we've contributed a lot of airtime to.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you. I don't think it's my number one favorite, but it's definitely in top few. And I think those things you mentioned, childhood and aging and memory, that's where King excels most. And yeah. I think uh, until some of his recent books, those notwithstanding, I think writing about children, he shines there more so than yeah. other areas. Absolutely. So, about, what did King think of this movie? Well, he loved it. According to an interview with uh, director Rob Reiner, he recalled that after a private screening of the film, King excused himself for 15 minutes to compose himself. And he later returned to remark, that's the best film ever made out of anything I've written, which isn't saying much, (laughs) but you've really (laughs) captured my story. Love it. What's better, the movie or the book?
1: I'll say movie, but I I will admit I haven't reread The Body in a long time. I wasn't on our episode about that and I just haven't revisited it. I will say the movie to me is really special. And I had a cool moment where when we showed it at our film festival, it was the opening movie, and I got to take my niece to it, who at the time was around the same age as all the characters, and, and she really, really responded to it. And I watched it when I was around the same age of the characters as well yeah. uh, when I was young. So, it was a cool movie to pass on to somebody. And I think that's a, a testament to just how powerful it is that it really spans
0: generations. Totally agree. And it, the movie affected me more so than the book did, I think, uh, yeah. just for me. Yeah. Um, and they're both great, but yeah, I, I agree with the movie. Do you have another guess? Actually, you know what? Before you guess, let me sprinkle in a few more Stephen King fun facts. Tell me, did you know Stephen King was severely addicted to drugs and alcohol? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) I think you did. We have uh, many episodes about it. (laughs) Yes, and many of his books are... that comes through in many of his books. Yeah. He says that his addictions were so serious that during the 1980s, he can barely remember writing Cujo. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I think he said the same thing about the Tommyknockers, maybe? Um, yeah. Which, yeah. I think he was
1: at the height of his addiction, and that was right before he got clean. Was Tommy Knocker's is yeah. the last one he wrote, and it's kind of, a, I think, a last gasp of his, you know, reckless indulgences. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell me if the next thing I tell you sounds anything like your office that you're recording. Okay. In. King's family and friends staged an intervention dumping on the rug in his office evidence of his addictions, including beer cans, cigarette butts, grams of cocaine, Xanax, Valium, NyQuil. Robotussin and mouthwash
1: i've got mouthwash and uh and <laughs> i've got some prescribed xanax and that's i think all i can really touch on me too uh there but i yeah i uh, but no i mean it's it's really intense the like how deep his addiction had really gone and you know we have a whole episode uh, devoted to uh, sobriety as it manifests within king's work um anna marie cox who's a, a rotating member is sober and kind of um that's one mm-hmm. of the things she writes about a lot of sobriety and so having her insight into king's work through the lens of like dr sleep which is a book about sobriety and but also then misery and tommy knockers you know like these things that are kind of on both sides of the sobriety scale yeah so i think it's definitely something that factors in heavily into i think a grander understanding of his work you know so
0: after he became clean which is in the 80s he says he's remained sober since and his first novel after that was one of my favorites needful things yeah. I love Needful Things. Yeah. Me too. Let's get you back to guessing. Give me another guess for the top 10.
1: Well, I feel like you spoiled one when you brought up Rob Reiner. So, I'm going to... I honestly wasn't going to guess this because I wasn't sure how much money it made, but I'll say Misery.
0: Misery is number seven in the top 10. Wow. Yeah. Misery was directed by Rob Reiner. Same director as Stand By Me. The movie came out in 1990 and made $133 million adjusted box office, bringing it to number seven. Told you a few minutes ago. I've read *Misery*. Second time I read it, but I just finished it maybe a week or two ago. So I just rewatched this movie. It's the most recent on this list I've watched, and man, does yeah. it, it holds up great! It's excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is about the 1987 book *Misery*. Uh, it's an American psychological thriller film starring James Caan and Kathy Bates in her breakout role. It's about a famous author who's rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels and he soon comes to realize that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. I know you guys touched on this a lot in your Misery episode, but there's no way he's writing about anything other than himself in this book. (laughs) Yeah, Like, it is so him, and he's denied that, but I don't buy it.
1: Great insight into the writing process, too, in in Misery. Uh, He loves to write about writers, and I think sometimes uh, the characters are more interesting than other ones. But Misery, I think, has a lot of really great insight into his process, like his general
0: process, Yeah, For sure. Which his process in real life may or may not involve smashing people in the head with a typewriter, but <laughs> I'll stop there. This movie received high positive reviews and was a box office success. And in fact, in its opening weekend, it finished second to Home Alone. <laughs> oh, wow. The contrast there, which I guess they're both stuck at home. Yeah. So <laughs> Kathy Bates' performance as Annie Wilkes drew widespread praise from critics and won her the Academy Award for Best Actress, making Misery the only film based on a Stephen King novel to win an Oscar. And King himself has stated that Misery is one of his top 10 favorite film adaptations. Yeah, it's a good one. The part of Paul Sheldon, which eventually went to James Caan, was originally offered, according to IMDb, to William Hurt, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, Jack Nicholson, and listener of the show, Robert Redford. But they all <laughs> turned it down. Yeah,
1: that's crazy. I, yeah, we did talk about that. And, and you know, because Khan kind of had uh, some of the wind had fallen out of his sails, I think, in his career a little bit. And this was a resurgence for him in some ways. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he killed it. I, I can't picture anyone but him now. Love in him way. in it. Yeah. Love Jimmy Khan. So, he showed up to the set hungover at times. <laughs> and all the scenes he shot that day were unusable. Rob Reiner told him that he had to do the scenes again because there was, quote, a problem at the lab. But when Kahn learned it had nothing to do with the labs, he offered to cover the money. He lost the studio. Good man. Good guy, James Kahn. Now, the role of Annie Wilkes was originally offered to Angelica Houston and then Bette Midler, Ugh! but both of them turned it down. Can you fucking imagine? Houston would have been
1: cool and maybe it could have been a dark turn for Bette Midler and she could have, you know, gone on to play like evil villains and maybe it would have been good, but I've, not something I necessarily would want to see. I, I also think Kathy Bates, is, it's iconic for her, you know.
0: Can't imagine yeah. anyone else. Same. But yeah, I do kind of want an alternate universe where Bette Midler is like dressed in her hocus pocus get up trying to be <laughs> Annie Wilkes. The film has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is among the highest I saw. So yeah, it's a, it's a beloved film. It's really good. I think. Between it and the book, it's very close. I think I will lean book just slightly, yeah. but close.
1: Yeah, I would do the same. I think the book is incredible and the movie also is very good, but I think the book, the power of it lands a little bit heavier. Yeah. And I'll say too, it, it was funny. I think the reason I, I almost didn't guess this is because the idea of a movie like Misery being a huge box office smash is so rare, like in our current age, that it's, it's I have to remember that I'm thinking back to different eras when movies like, Mm-hmm. Stand By Me and, um, and Misery made like huge box office numbers, which just, you know, movies that are that intimate usually don't make that kind of money anymore.
0: And Misery, think about it. I mean, it's starring James Caan, who, as you said, was kind of not the hottest commodity at the time. Yeah. He wasn't a huge star, yeah. And Kathy Bates was an unknown. Right. So, I actually don't know what to attribute the success of this movie to other than, I guess, the Stephen King brand and or, you know, just the really positive reviews.
1: Good reviews. And and then I think uh, probably the Oscar, you know, buzz and all that probably
0: accelerated it. And I hope to someday have a good review or two for this podcast as well. (laughs) Hey, forget about it. But actually, don't, don't forget about it. Don't forget about this. Our newest bonus episode is here, and it includes a special bonus treat just for you. For the first time since December of last year, Brandon Kaufman, yes, that's THE Brandon, he joined me again for an episode. Brandon joined me in breaking down his favorite show, The Sopranos. I recently completed my first watch-through of The Sopranos, but because Brandon's the biggest Sopranos fan I know, I had to have him on. If you've ever watched The Sopranos, you need to listen to this. You can check out this new Sopranos bonus episode right now on Tenishpod Plus. You can unlock instant access to this and about 40 other exclusive bonus episodes with more added every month, not to mention early and ad-free access to main feed episodes like the one you're listening to now. Get more info and easily sign up now at TennisPod.com plus. That's TennisPod.com P-L-U-S. Or you can also subscribe in one tap at the top of our page on Apple Podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Hurry and sign up now before you sleep with the fishes. All right, so you just need numbers 10, 8, and 5, and 3. Okay. And I'm not sure you're going to get number 10, so I'll be impressed if you do.
1: Okay, um, another guess I'm going to have is, I thought about The Shining, but I I remember it tanked at the box office, so I'm not going to guess that.
0: I'm going to say Christine. Christine, good guess. It's number 17 with 60 million. thought that one
1: did better. Okay. That's uh, your my first next... uh,
0: wrong guess, I think, today.
1: Yeah, my first wrong guess. Yeah, because Mike's sort of the smart one when it, when it comes to like nuts and bolts of box office. I'm kind of... When it comes to the older ones, I'm mostly just guessing. I'm going to say...
0: Let me look here. You want to rethink one of the ones you dismissed earlier? Oh, I'll say The Shining. I had the same thought because I had it in my memory that The Shining bombed. Yeah. But The Shining is way up at number five. Wow. Maybe I'm
1: just attributing because I remember it got bad reviews. Like it it was up for Razzie and stuff like that back then. Yeah. Yeah. That might be what you're thinking of.
0: Maybe two. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. The Shining is number five. It was released in 1980 based on the 1977 book of the same name, which is kind of incredible that, you know, Carrie was the first book and movie for Stephen King. Mm Mm-hmm. The movie came out three years after the book. Same here. So, the Stephen King brand is uh, growing fast at this time. Absolutely, and again, he's in yeah. his late 20s, early 30s. So, incredible. $152 million at the Adjusted Box Office. It's a 1980 psychological horror film produced and directed by our boy Stanley Kubrick, co-written with novelist Diane Johnson. It stars Jack Nicholson in what I would call his defining role. Yeah, he's so good. Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and Danny Lloyd who played uh, young Danny. A family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter, where a sinister presence influences the father into violence, while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both past and future. Reactions to the film at the time of its release were mixed at best. Stephen King himself criticized the film due to its deviations from the novel. Tell me if you've heard this quote. This is from Stephen King. Parts of the film are chilling, charged with a relentlessly claustrophobic terror but others fall flat. Not that religion has to be involved in horror, but a visceral skeptic such as Kubrick just couldn't grasp the sheer inhuman evil of the Overlook Hotel. So he looked instead for an evil in the characters and made the film into a domestic tragedy with only vaguely supernatural overtones. That was the basic flaw. It never gets you by the throat and hangs on the way real horror should. I'll say before you chime in that I just think he's way off on that. (laughs) I think that inner evil is what's more interesting in the movie. But what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that King's issue is he believes in a goodness in humanity, right? And Jack is corrupted throughout the course of of The Shining by the hotel, sort of, because he's trying to be a better dad at the beginning. Like He's trying to be a better person. The hotel kind of gets its hooks into him and, and exploits a lot of his anger issues, his alcoholism, all those things. So I think King's issue with it is that Jack's kind of crazy from the beginning. Uh, Nicholson plays him as kind of crazy crazy from the beginning. Yes. I think he was angry about the idea that Jack is kind of doomed from the start, that this is a guy who didn't really need the nudging. He was going to go crazy no matter what. And I think that is a, such a big deviation from what King was trying to do. And it probably has a lot to do with his own, I don't know, feelings about his own alcoholism. Because he, he always says he was writing about his own alcoholism at the time, and this was well before he got sober, but he just wasn't aware he was doing it. And so I think that perhaps his vision and his view of the alcoholism and the way that it's portrayed in the book versus how it's portrayed in the movie, I think might also color his view of it. And I also get the vibe yeah. from interviews that him and Stanley Kubrick did not. not They weren't like enemies, but there was, I think, an adversarial relationship. And I think Kubrick kind of bullied King a little bit, like, uh, in, in his way. There's, like, stories about mm. him calling King in, like, the middle of the night and being like, do you believe in God? And, like, it's, you know, just fucking with him. And so I think that they were on different wavelengths, but I do love the movie, and I love the book, you know?
0: Me too, yeah. I agree with all that, and I think Stephen King was not alone in being bullied by Stanley Kubrick, especially on set, as, <laughs> as uh, Shelley Duvall will tell you. But you mentioned it, critical response to the film has become more favorable over time. And it is now regarded as one of the greatest horror films ever made and a staple of pop culture. I'm going to get back to that in a second. I stopped here with the notes. I could keep going forever. There's so much interesting to talk about this movie, but I've talked about it on my pod before. You've done it on yours. So I thought I could direct people there if they want more. In fact, we did top grossing Jack Nicholson films back on episode 42. We went in depth on this as well as on episode 89 where we covered the best horror movies ever. So for the sake of time, I'll stop us there. But I wanted to get your take Randall on what do you think is between I think it's between this Carrie and it slash Pennywise. What do you think is the most culturally significant or well known or famous or popular story or figure in the Stephen King universe?
1: I think that's a great question. My head says Carrie, but my my heart says Jack. Like I feel like with Carrie it's the prom photo, right? Like that's the thing that yes. has Persevered. Whereas with The Shining, it's so many different things. Like it's him frozen in the snow at the end. It's the carpet. <laughs> it's the various myths that have sprung up around the filmmaking aspect of it. It's the twins, right? It's the dog yeah. man. And so I feel like I'll say uh, The Shining. Face through
0: the door, most of all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: In Red Rum, you know, it's, it's been parodied and riffed on and. and like, look at Ready Player One, you know, it's permeated the culture, I think, in ways that are more widespread than the other two. Like, obviously, Pennywise is in some ways responsible for, I think, people being scared of clowns (laughs)
0: to a
1: degree. Yes, It's impactful, but I would say uh, I'm going to go with The Shining.
0: I remember when I was a little kid and I, I, I love horror films now, but I did not when I was a kid. I was the same, yeah. And I remember talking to someone and they were like, oh, the scariest movie ever. And they said it as if it was a fact and not an opinion. And I'm like, eight or nine is It. Never watch It. You'll be scared forever. You'll have nightmares. And I remember seeing a picture of the original It movie and it scarred me and I had nightmares Mm -hmm. about it. That's what I think drew me to the book years later. But So, you know, maybe I'm biased in that way, but I just think maybe and it could be because the movie, the It movies are so recent that it's kind of enjoying a resurgence right now. But I don't know, it's hard for me to pick against It. But between that and The Shining, I think, are top two. I'd put Carrie third. Yeah. Okay, well, let's close the book then on the show. Oh, you know what? What's better, book or movie? Shining. It's hard for me to answer because they, they both succeed at such different
1: things. But I think I would go with the book uh, just because I think that there's a very deep human story there. That There's images from the book that more scare tragic. me more than stuff. Yeah, like than in the uh, actual movie. And I love the movie. It's in my top movies ever, but. That's a really hard one, but I guess I'll say book. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I struggled as well. If you ask me on a different day, I might have a different answer, but right now yeah, I'm the same say movie. Yeah. Okay, so what else you got? We need 10, 8, and 3. Okay, this is going
1: to be, let me say, um, the Dead Zone?
0: Dead Zone is number 18. Pet Cemetery. Oh, which one? <laughs> oh, uh, I'll, say the, I'll say the New one. The new one, 2019 Pet Cemetery, is number 11. Oh, close. How about the original? The original is number 8. Okay,
1: there we go. Yeah. It's funny. I would have guessed the, the new one made more money uh, based on, you know, the... I remember them reporting on the big box office numbers for it. I was not a fan of the remake, really, but um, love the original. Like, more so than yeah. most people, I think, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm... I, I'd like the original, but you definitely like it more than me just from, you know, hearing you talk about it. But... I didn't hate the new one, but uh, it had a lot of flaws. And I don't like, yeah. you know, that, that key decision, that key difference they yeah. made, which you could probably yeah. guess what I'm talking about. The original Pet Cemetery movie came out in 1989. It's based on the book of the same name from 1983, and it made adjusted for inflation $132 million at the domestic box office. After tragedy strikes, a grieving father discovers an ancient burial ground behind his home with the power to raise the dead. The movie is directed by Mary Lambert and actually written by Stephen King himself. My favorite screenplay of his, yeah. King also makes an on-screen appearance as the priest. As stipulated by King when he sold the rights, so remember, this is more than 10 years after he got big with Carrie and The Shining. He stipulated that when he sold the rights, it had to be shot in Maine, where the story was set, and King himself had to write the screenplay, which both of those things happened. Yeah. So I think unlike Kubrick's The Shining, Stephen King was very involved in the filming process. He was consulting with Mary Lambert frequently on her ideas for the story and any deviations from the scripts. Real quick sidebar, not to go back to The Shining, but it's so fascinating that perhaps the most famous movie and story he's ever done is made so famous by a movie that's pretty unfaithful to the source material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me if you've heard this. The house used for the Creed's home in the movie is a private residence near Hancock, Maine. While the house across the street, which belonged to the character Judd, was actually a facade constructed around an existing house that was insulated with fireproof material so that the mock-up house could be burned around the real one. I think I did know that. But yeah, I love Judd's house. It's so fucking creepy. Would you let someone do that to your house? Your real house? <laughs> Say They, they knock on your door and said, Hey, we know you live here. We want to build a fake facade house around your real house and burn it (laughs) depends on the price figure (laughs) yeah give me the money i wonder what that they make for that sort of thing you know i know bloody disgusting whom i think you might know of them yeah they rated this uh movie four and a half out of five stars and wrote the plot alone would make for a scary movie but by injecting excellent atmosphere capable acting and a generally nightmarish scenes pet cemetery is a truly effective horror flick and well worth the price of admission this one, I like the movie, but man, I can't go against the book. I think, I think it's my second or third favorite Stephen King book. It's definitely the scariest to me, the most unsettling.
1: I think it's my favorite book by Stephen King. I love The Darkness. It's such a clean story. It has such a, like, such a solid, like a rock-solid metaphor at the heart of it that is so potent and absolutely unnerving. And I just think it's beautifully written. Um, I know he, yes. he, he thinks the book's too dark, because uh, I think he likes, um, you know, some semblance of a happy ending when he's writing novels. I think Pet Cemetery is lightning in a bottle. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I love the movie too, but yeah.
0: Yeah. I say the darker the better with King. And I know Same. his recent work is far less dark on average. Yeah. Which is a shame, because Pet Cemetery I think, is pretty close to a masterpiece, I think.
1: In some recent episodes, we've been talking about sort of happy, contented 74-year-old king versus, you know, paranoid, alcoholic king of the 70s, which, uh, and obviously it's like everybody's art gets worse when they get sober, right?
0: Yes, yeah.
1: But we we still love a lot of King's later stuff, but I think that the anger and the paranoia that I think I really love about his early stuff, I think that's gone forever. Yeah. Which isn't a bad thing necessarily because he's obviously a happy person, and that's more important, Yeah. but, you know.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And fortunately for us, he has so much early work that we can still sink our teeth into.
1: Absolutely. Even if the yeah. new
0: work is not quite as good, but still still has its bright spots. Still good, yeah. So you just need two more. What do you think we're missing? I'm gonna guess Cujo.
1: Cujo number sixteen. Ah. Uh, I can't watch that movie because I, I struggle with animals like being too. hurt <laughs> in movies. Yeah. But I did read the book and I love the book, but I could never read it again. I'm just too sensitive these days.
0: The book makes me so sad, too, because of the affair. I know. Like, I don't, it's yeah. so sad. It's a sad book.
1: I'm going to guess, that's probably be wrong. I'm going to guess uh, The Green Mile. I'm surprised you think that's wrong. Why is that? Really? Well, because it's three hours, you know, like, and it's yes. not sexy. You know what I mean? But it was up for Oscars. So I guess, it, and it had Hanks. So I guess and it, had Hanks. it did have that buzz. Is it and on it the list? Frank
0: Darabont, which, uh, who, you know, did Shawshank as well. Yeah. And that had obviously very favorable reviews. Green Miles number three. Way wow. up at number three. Yeah. I had no clue. It was a big box office success at the time. And when you adjust it for inflation, it's way up at number three at 233 million. Holy shit. That's yeah. interesting.
1: Because I know Shawshank didn't make a lot of money.
0: No, Shawshank like, did not. They had to not. beg
1: people to see it. <laughs> and then it, it kind of had a little resurgence when all the Oscars came out. And then obviously, it, you know, every, the, the kind of lore around Shawshank is that uh, everybody found it on TNT, right? When they started airing yes. it.
0: <laughs> Me too.
1: I did. And it's an, yeah, same. And it's an incredible movie. I love it. And, uh, but yeah, I guess I never thought any of the Darabont movies made a lot of money. But yeah, I guess I've proven wrong.
0: Well, this is really the only one. And Shawshank, by the way, is my probably my personal favorite Stephen King adaptation, but you're right, it's not in the top 10. The only Darabont film in the top 10 is this one, 1999's Green Mile, based on the 1996 book. It's Academy Award-nominated fantasy drama written and directed by Frank Darabont. It stars Tom Hanks as a death row prison guard during the Great Depression who witnesses supernatural events following the arrival of an enigmatic convict played by Michael Clarke Duncan. According to one of the featurettes on the DVD, Stephen King called this film the single most faithful adaptation of his work, which maybe is why it was so long, the movie. Yeah. Jo- John Travolta was originally offered the role of Paul Edgecombe, according to IMDb, but he turned yeah. it down. You know, listeners of the pod know I'm not a huge John Travolta fan. <laughs> so I, I'm, they did the, they made the right choice here. Or I guess Tom Hanks made the right choice. Yeah. It's funny to think of Hanks being a
1: second choice, you know?
0: Yeah, especially now. And this sounds almost too far-fetched for me to believe it, but it's said on IMDb, which is that the original role of John Coffey, which went to Michael Clark Duncan, was originally pitched to Shaquille O'Neal.
1: Ugh, yeah, that wouldn't have worked. Like, not that Shaquille's not charismatic, but I can't see him carrying the drama of it.
0: No. Michael Clark Duncan is uh, essential to this film. Yeah, he's wonderful in it, yeah. And also essential to the film were the 15 mice used in the movie, which each spent months being trained to do different tricks. Yeah. Which is funny because couldn't you just use CGI mouse? I mean... uh, (laughs) But that's what makes it good because you get the
1: authentic mouse action.
0: Yeah. The film uh, did really well. 79% of Rotten Tomatoes, although every single review I saw criticized the three hour plus runtime. Yeah. It's a long one, man. Yeah. I remember enjoying the movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but what keeps me from rewatching it is the runtime for sure. Yeah. Yeah it's been probably 10 plus years since I read the book. I remember liking it, but not being blown away by it. Mm-hmm. I know you guys recently did. Episode, I haven't listened to your episode yet since I'm waiting to reread it. But so tell me, what, what's your recent reread tell you for this book?
1: I would definitely say the book's better than the movie, but the movie is very faithful to it. And there's some great casting. I mean, Sam Rockwell yeah. and um, Doug Hutchinson are both so good as the villains like Percy and um, Percy. Yeah and Wild Bill, they're both so, so, so good. And they really elevate the movie. And the drama's great, too. It gets a little schmaltzy, I think, but the book does a little bit, too. But yeah, I just think in terms of sheer power, the book is going to surpass that one.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, you've done it. You're down to your last guess, number 10. And you said I probably wouldn't guess this one. Yeah. It's got a big star in it, if that helps. But Hmm. I've actually never even seen this one or read the book myself. Interesting.
1: Let me think on this.
0: Those are good hints. Big star. I'll say this. Other than maybe Tom Hanks, this is probably the biggest star as far as the actor. Huh.
1: But I'm looking here. It can't be the Dark Tower.
0: No, although that's way higher than I thought at 13. Really? Yeah.
1: I remember the, the numbers were bad, like, but it was only bad sort of comparatively uh, to, yeah. I think... It's budget and all that. Yeah, the budget and everything. Man, that movie, we're revisiting that this fall when we're doing kind of our Dark Tower-a-thon, and I'm excited about that. So many thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm excited. Oh, 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 I know. Secret Window.
0: A good guess, but no, that's number 12.
1: Interesting. Yeah, because Johnny, Johnny Depp. Depp, I was thinking The Big Star. That movie's not great, but I actually like it better than the story, which I don't really love.
0: Same here. I, I, I yeah. like the movie okay. don't love the story. I'll say that the, uh, the person, the actor I keep referencing is uh, a little bigger in stature than Mr. Johnny Depp. Oh, the Running Man! The Running Man, starring Wow,
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, number ten. I love the Running Man. I've never seen it. Oh, it's fun. It's better than the book too, because the book is kind of miserable. It's not one of his best. It's my least favorite Bachman book.
0: Except Long Walk.
1: Yeah, Long Walk's really good. I'm not a fan of the other of the other ones. Even Thinner. No, me either. And I haven't read Blaze, but but yeah, Running Man is one of our most negative episodes. I feel like we really don't like that one. Because it's just, I'm not somebody who needs likable characters, but like Ben in The Running Man is like one of the most like loathsome, you just don't want to spend time with him. He's unpleasant. Mm. There's some good writing in there. There's some good action and stuff, but it's so different. And then the Arnie movie. That's just a great example of them spinning it in a completely different direction that somehow kind of works. It's it's not a good movie, but it it's entertaining as hell and it's got yeah. Popcorn movie. Yeah, it's yeah. a popcorn movie and it's the sort of thing that I think we love when people make movies like that today. Like that are big and garish and silly but also like kind of brutal. And that's what Arnold was so good at. And I'm a huge, I'm also a huge Arnold fan. Like Arnold's, I love Arnold. he's, he's to me like an icon of my childhood. I love him so much. And that movie, it's not my favorite of his, but I think it's, you know, in terms of a Running Man adaptation, I'd rather have that. Apparently, Edgar Wright's making a new Running Man that adheres more to the book. Yeah,
0: that's in my notes.
1: Yeah, which could be cool. I mean, I like, I, you know, I like Edgar Wright, but I wouldn't say I'm necessarily starved for a, an, uh, like a, an earnest telling of the Running Man, so.
0: No, me either. Well, I haven't read it, but I'm not excited to read it or watch the movie. So, it's not like the first Stephen King property I'd want to see made. (laughs) I'd much rather get a Long Walk, which I think was in development at one point and then got stuck somewhere along the way. I
1: think I heard rumors that it's starting to film relatively soon. I think it is still
0: happening. Yeah. I'd put Long Walk up there with some of the better Stephen King books. But the Bach... I'm just not a fan of Bachman books. And this is the only Bachman book movie on the list.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, even the worst Stephen King books have good parts in them like you were saying, but just just not for me. Uh, But the movie itself, it came out in 1982. $95 million adjusted box office. Stars our boy Arnie. It's about a TV show where convicted criminal runners must escape death at the hands of professional killers. And it's very loosely based on the Stephen King book, which he wrote as Richard Bachman. The 1987 film, I think I said 82 earlier, it's 87. The film is set in a dystopian United States between 2017 and 2019, which I thought was funny. (laughs) That's funny. Which, if it was 2020 to 2022, they might be closer to uh, Mm -hmm. the truth. The movie actually has decent reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, 66%
1: Oh, wow. Better than I would imagine, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I haven't read the book, like I said, so I can't tell you if it's better than the movie.
1: Yeah, Running Man's a a fun watch. I, I don't know. I'd say it's a for King Completus only which I certainly am, and um, the movie is, I think, a fun you know one to throw on if you've got friends over or something. It's not a movie you necessarily yeah. need to pay attention to the to the story, but there's some great performances, like I believe Richard Dawson, the game show host, is the is the villain. He's in it. Yeah. Jesse Ventura's in it, and he's hilarious. There's a lot of like you know big strong men
0: types that are in it, and they're yeah. great. Well, we got two future governors in it then. Uh, Ventura yeah, exactly.
1: And- it's so yeah. it's so strange, but yeah. you know, fun movie.
0: So, Randall, you've done it. You've guessed all 10, and I'm going to go back through them. I'm actually going to start a speed run through the top 25 here. You'll see what movies you missed, too, that you haven't mentioned. So, at number 25 is Hearts in Atlantis from 2001. Number four is another really famous one, Children of the Corn. 23 is the 2013 version of Carrie. 22 is Dolores Claiborne, which also starred Kathy Bates of Misery fame. Yeah. 21 is Firestarter. 20 is Dreamcatcher. That movie fucking sucked.
1: <laughs> we just recorded an episode on it, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's one where I've seen the movie but not read the book, and the movie was enough to make me not want to read the book, so I still haven't done it. <laughs> and I've read, like, I don't know, at least 75% of his books, so, yeah, you know, it takes a lot for me to not read one. 19 is my favorite, The Shawshank Redemption.
1: Yeah.
0: 18, The Dead Zone. 17, Christine. 16, Cujo. 15, I think this is your favorite, Sleepwalkers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Horrible movie. Made more money than I would have thought, though.
0: Yeah, 62 million adjusted. 14 is The Lawnmower Man. 13, Dark Tower. 12, Secret Window. 11, The Newest Pet Cemetery from 2019. Mm, I think there's yeah. more coming on that. Yeah, yeah. 10 is The Running Man, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. 19 is 1408. 8 is Pet Cemetery. 7 is Misery. 16 is Stand By Me. Did I say sixteen? I said. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I got off on my numbers. Seven is misery. Six is Stand by Me. Five is The Shining. Four is the original Carry in nineteen seventy six. Three is the Green Mile. Two is It Chapter Two, and number one is It, just It, which is also known as It Chapter One. Yeah. Kudos and congrats.
1: Thank you. It was fun. You did good. I learned a thing or two today.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what we want to do here. We want to. Uh, <laughs> You know, through all the bullshit, you can learn a fun fact or two. Yeah. It's time for your favorite part of the week. The thing you just can't wait for. You probably lost sleep. Waiting for it, it's time for me to read some podcast reviews for the Tennis Podcast. The first one comes from Cool Benny K on Apple Podcasts. Cool Benny says, when I was listening, the show connects with me as a listener. I enjoy how each of the episodes are very comedic and rank up different categories such as video games and high-grossing films. I recommend others to join in on the fun. Kay, cool, I'm glad one of us is having fun with this podcast, but thank you for the review. As for connecting with you as a listener, I'll send you a few doctors I recommend to have you checked out for that. The next one comes from Clusterflix on Apple again. If you are a fan of collecting random facts to dazzle your friends and family, then this is the show for you. These guys are so funny and have just wonderful chemistry. Give the show a shot. You will NOT be sorry! So that means anyone listening, if you are sorry for listening, take it up with cluster flicks. We never promised anything. But really thank you for that review and thank you for all reviews. If you want me to read yours on a future episode. You can go to Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or the Good Pods app, rate us five stars, write a review, I'll read that shit. Now let's go back to Stephen Kingland. Randall, you've talked about your pod already, but if there's anything coming up you want to shout out or tell people how to find you, please do that. I would just
1: say you can also follow us on, or uh, subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thebarons. We do, I think, a pretty good job of, yeah, hell yeah, we do a pretty good job, I think, of putting cool shit behind the paywall. We have a discord community that I think is really fun and positive. And you can find me on Twitter at Randall Colburn and on Instagram at the same. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's what I'll say for now.
0: Yeah. Anyone who has read any Stephen King book needs to listen to the losers club. It's not just saying this cause Randall's here. It is my favorite Stephen King podcast, the best I've listened to and I've subscribed for years and I'll continue to do so. So thank you so much, Nick. Randall, it was a huge honor to have you here, man. Thank you. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. Long days and pleasant nights. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Goodbye.